Thank you. It's so good to be here. And I can tell that people are, are happy to be back, too, because it's the most clapping I think I've ever heard in our church going on this morning. There's a couple claps first service, and I heard a clap already, so I'm like, all right, we're on a, we're on a roll here. Well, we're in a series right now called Intentionality. The focus is intentionality, and that's because we noticed during quarantine, uh, we kind of quickly lost track of many of the things that are dearest to us. And kind of like hobbits in their holes, we kind of just went into our little routine and lost, lost focus. So the goal here today is to be looking at ways that we can be intentional with our identity, the most precious thing to us. And this is a really important topic to me. Uh, there was someone who invested in my life about 12 years ago. It's my father-in-law. And he started teaching me about identity. And I realized how, although I'd been a Christian for about 20 years at that point, I realized that my identity was really not resting on Christ, but rather on what others were saying about me, on performance reviews, whether it's from a wife, a friend, a boss. I was looking to these sources for a sense of identity. So I'm so excited to be preaching today about identity. My father-in-law greatly influenced me. He wrote a book on it. I'm stealing a lot of his stuff in order to preach this today to you. But I'm really, really excited for bringing this word. Please, uh, please join me for a quick prayer. Heavenly Father, would you please speak to us this morning? We need to hear an authoritative word from you about who we are. There's so many voices, Lord, internally and externally, screaming, trying to put labels on us when only you are qualified, authoritative enough to name us. Open our hearts. Speak through your word by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The text we're going to be focusing on today comes from Luke. It's chapter 4, 1 through 13. It's a familiar passage. It's the temptation of Jesus. So if you'd like to, you can read along in your Bible, or you can just simply listen. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will, if you then will worship me. It will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, 
you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Well, during this COVID time, I thought I would seize the moment. Uh, like maybe many of you, I have some school debt. I've worked hard and paid some of that down. I've also received some grace and helped pay that down. But I thought maybe I can knock this down a little further. Uh, if I call in and say, hey, because of we're in COVID time, would you mind bumping my school debt down a little bit? And to my surprise, the woman on the other end said, we would be glad to. Let me just check. I just got confirmation. I can reduce your student debt by 90%. Would you like to accept that? Uh, yes, please, please. Let's, let's start doing that right now. So she starts asking for information. Can you give me this? Sure, here it is. Here's my, here's my uh, social security. Driver's license number, driver's license. Address. Ad and then she got to this point when I started feeling real funny. She said, can I have your debit card number now? And I was like, you know what was happening, right? Identity theft. And I suddenly realized, oh no, this is a scam. They got me. And uh, I thought, what sh should I, how can I react with that? I'm going to be nice to this person. They, they have all my information now. So I hung up the phone, called Experian, all the three companies, and locked up all my accounts. But this is the point of it. <laughs> there is a point. <laughs> I'll be... <laughs> The point is that we are far too easily deceived to giving what's most valuable, what's most precious to us, and it's our identity. Now, I fell into the trap. I usually pride myself in not falling into those traps, but I fell into it. But how often are we daily making decisions to allow someone else to steal what's precious to us? Our identity in Christ. Because God has already authoritatively spoken over us. And any time we go into works-oriented, performance-based religion, we have just given out that social security number, that driver's license number. The main focus of this sermon is this. Since the Father has already spoken who we are, we must be intentional and resist trying to prove who we are through our works. So there's a way in which we've been experiencing COVID wilderness, just like Jesus, right? I mean, the enemy came to him in an opportune time. And this has been a very opportune time to kind of lose focus, lose track. Uh, some of us have been through various trials besides, on top, compounding the effects of the isolation. Other voices have come in during this time and spoken over us and said, this is who you are. Isolated from community. What a perfect time to say, this is who you are. Deceitful words from the enemy. In order to regain our bearings, we must cleave to what has already been written and spoken over us. And the main points of the, three points of this sermon is this. God has spoken authoritatively over your life already. The enemy is out to steal your identity. And we must embrace our identity. Point number one, God has spoken authoritatively over your life. So in this passage, we see that Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness by the evil one. And we all know the story. He made it through. He resisted. But we have to find, what was his source of strength? 
You might be thinking, well, he's God, yeah. But you turn back a chapter, and you'll see God made it very clear in the scriptures what Jesus' source of strength was while he was in flesh and vulnerable. Look back, if you want to, uh, Luke 3, verses 21 through 22, and something very significant happened here that enabled Jesus to make it through this temptation in a whole life of ministry, the most difficult job anyone's ever had. So shortly, Luke 3, 21 through 22, it says, Shortly after he was baptized, the heavens were opened, and this authoritative voice spoke down. The Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And God was making it clear to others, but also to Jesus, You are my Son, and you're not just my Son, you're beloved. And you're not just beloved, I'm pleased with you. No, not just pleased, well pleased. This was Jesus' fuel for ministry, to go into the fray of all the competing voices. That some were going to say he's a drunkard. Some were going to say he was a glutton. Some were going to say that he has a demon inside him. Some of them were going to say, you're a great teacher. But God said, no, you are my beloved son. And I'm well pleased with you. And the good news is that he spoke this word over Jesus, but he also speaks this word over you in Christ. Because in Christ's death, he gave you his reputation. And I know it's hard to be, it's easy to be distracted with our sins and our failings, but when God looks at you, it's just as it was that day, and he looks at you and he says, Beloved, you're my daughter. You're my son. And I'm well pleased with you. You don't have to prove it. I put it on you. I put it in you. There will be many voices trying to label us. But we have to be intentional to hold on to this authoritative voice that is spoken over us. Why is it so hard to hold on to this? Because we want to continually go back to the voice of condemnation. Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But have you noticed that we often go to that voice that wants to name you in condemnation? Like, yeah, I deserve it. That's right. I mean, think of the last time you were under intense anxiety and stress. What did you name yourself in that moment? You're such an idiot. You fool. You're saying to yourself. The things that you say in the car, the things that you say when you walk off out of a scene at work in private, you're naming yourself and you're stepping into the identity that the enemy has stored up for you. Some of you, you've been named by a bully in your past or maybe something that's been done to you. You've allowed that to name you. Maybe something that you've done that's wrong and you've allowed that to name you. But there's only one voice that's authoritative enough to say who you are. And I'm just urging you today to listen to that voice. I have a quote here. Actually, it's a poem, rather, from a death row inmate. And on death row, you learn to think a lot because all the noise is shut out from the outside and you have a long time to process who you are. Who am I? What have I done? How did I get here? And I want to read this poem because I think it's very revealing. It's a, it's a picture of how to find who you truly are. 
It's by someone you may know. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And the poem is entitled, Who Am I? I'm going to post it up here so you could read along as I read it. Who am I? They often tell me. I stepped out from my cell, composed, contented, and sure, like a lord from his manor. Who am I? They often tell me. I speak with my jailers, frankly, familiar and firm, as though I was in command. Who am I? They also tell me I bear the days of hardship, unconcerned, amused, and proud, like one who usually wins. Am I really what others tell me? Or am I only what I myself know of me? Troubled, homesick, ill like a bird in a cage, grasping for breath as though one strangled me, hungering for colors, for flowers, for songs of birds, thirsting for kind words, for human company, quivering with anger and despotism and petty insults, anxiously waiting for great events, helplessly worrying about friends far away, empty and tired of praying, of thinking, of working, exhausted and ready to bear, bid farewell to it all. Who am I, this or the other? Am I then this today and the other tomorrow? Am I both at the same time? In public, a hypocrite, and by myself, a contemptible, whining weakling? Or am I to myself like a beaten army, flying in disorder from a victory already won? Who am I? Lonely questions mock me. Who I really am, you know me. I am thine, O God. It's beautifully spoken, and so eloquently put that the only one that can name us is God. You notice there he has the competing voices, the outsider saying how great he is in this case, and inside of himself saying, I'm not all that really. If you could really see what I am, I'm broken, I'm wounded, I'm feeble. So not even you can name yourself. And that's a different thing in this, in this world of rugged individualism. And not even you can name yourself. Because there's only one voice authoritative enough to name you, and that's the voice of God. But yet other voices keep speaking. So I want to ask you this morning, just stop for a moment and think, who are you currently giving authority to say who you are? Who or what are you currently giving the authority to name you? Is it your performance at work? Is it your spouse? Do you know that not even your, your spouse doesn't even have the authority to name you as a man or a woman? Because God decided when you were in the womb, he said, I've made a male, I've made a female in the womb. Have you ever noticed that people will say, if you're, a, if you're really a man, you will. If you're really a woman, you will. No. Spouses, friends, your identity as a mother or father, nothing can fully name you and authoritatively name you but the voice of God and what he has to say to you. Beloved, son, daughter, I'm 
pleased with you. Don't go jumping through hoops. You've already got it. From this point on, it's just a road upward. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to disciple you. It's a trail, and we're going to walk down it together. Second point, you have an identity, an authoritatively spoken identity, but the enemy wants to steal it. So notice here, we look in the passage, it says, when he was hungry. So he comes at opportune times, right? He waits until Jesus is hungry. He's been fasting for 40 days, and he knows that even God in the flesh is vulnerable when he's hungry. And we all know this because we, we sometimes snap on our friends or our children after church because we're a little hangry. But Jesus is hungry, and that's when he comes at that opportune time. It's a vulnerable moment. But I want you to scan over this passage and take a closer look at the enemy's strategy. So the first strategy, he comes when he's vulnerable, when he's hungry. But he has another strategy. If you look, Satan's repeating a phrase to Jesus around about three times. Can you think of what, what he's repeating to him? He's saying, if you are, if you are. Now, God spoke just a chapter earlier, which I'm assuming wasn't that long ago. He spoke, you are my beloved son, and I'm well pleased with you. Now, Satan, just a little while later, saying, if you are, if you are the son of God, jump through this hoop. Make that bread, make that rock into a bread. If you are the son of God, do something spectacular. Jump off the precipice of this building and cause the angels to catch you and watch everybody just flock to you. If you are. You see what he's trying to do? He's leading him into a works-based righteousness, a works-based sense of like, I have worth. If I do this, then I... So this if, it's a, just a little word here, if, if. And it's like the fulcrum of identity, and we're standing securely in who we are, and he's saying, if you are, and he's trying to get you to teeter to the other side, trying to prove and establish who you are. If you are a man, if you truly are, God determined that long ago. If you have faith in Christ, you are a beloved son or daughter before you wake up in the morning, before you do anything right or wrong, God has established, you are my beloved, and I'm well pleased with you. And we often go to that voice of condemnation, but I fail, but I falter. How many of you get up into an 11-month-old baby's face and start criticizing when they fall down? They're walking along like a, like a drunken sailor, and they fall down on their diaper. You don't get in their face, and the, the Lord is the same way because you're a beloved son and daughter. He sees you falter, and he says, come on, we got this, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. We're going to keep going through this. If you are. Whenever we take the bait, the if bait, if you really are worth something, you'll be this at work. If you really are, you'll look this way. If you really have worth, you'll be this healthy right now. It's not skin deep. We, we too often go to the easy fixes. Like, I can get good grades. I can do this. I can do that. And establish my worth and my value. That's the enemy's trap. Because God has designed us to be free, like Pastor Carson was singing. 
It's for freedom that Christ set us free. He set you free and named you before so that you can walk freely, so that you can work with all your might, not as a slave, but as a son and as a daughter. I'm not trying to prove anything here. I'm just flowing in my excellence. I'm just doing my best to, to master my craft as a son, an accepted son or daughter. If. So be, be aware of that as you go into your week. If. Are you stepping into the if territory? If you truly are. It's a trap. It's an interpretation war. I've been reading Lord of the Rings lately, and um, there's, a, there's a great picture of this if um, and this transformation. You all know the character Gollum, right? Can somebody do the voice right now? <laughs> Everybody has a Gollum voice. But, the, but Gollum is this slimy, skinny creature. He lives in the middle of a lake below the Misty Mountain. He's pale, he has these huge glowing eyes, and he is just a shell of himself, of what he used to be. He used to be something glorious, but he's, he's, he's turned and something has happened. Now what happened? What happened? This is what happened. He exchanged his identity for an object. He fixed all of his desires, his aspirations, his hope, and his worth on an object, the ring. It became his precious. He lost his selfhood so much that he can't even say the word I anymore. He's objectified himself. And you think this has been going on for a long time because in the garden, Adam was and Eve were deceived into taking the apple. They put all their affections on that apple. And that apple became the subject, and Adam and Eve became the object. Because they thought they would have more. They thought they'd be more of something. They'd be more enlightened. They'd be more human. They'd be more glorious if they took something by their own effort. When God said, this whole, this whole garden's for you. Just don't. Uh, philosopher Peter Kreft describes this when he writes, The object, the apple, grew into a god. And we shrank into its slaves. We exchanged places. We became the objects, the its, and it became the subject, the I, the Lord, the God. We found our identity in what was less than ourselves in something we could possess. And now Gollum is the subject and his fetish. Now Gollum is the object and his fetish the subject. And just think about that. Think about that for a minute. Like, we're all tempted. And imagine when, when we reach out and we go for the temptation, what, what if, maybe it's an affair. We think it's going to bring us this new level of, like, value and affirmation and glory. But what happens? It objectifies us. We become like Gollum. We actually become less human, less glorious. Then if we would stay and say, no, I'm standing, I have worth, I have value, regardless if I'm not feeling affirmed by my spouse or my friends, my brother, my sister, my job, my workplace, you're actually more dignified and more humane when you allow the brokenness to rest in you. 
Say, I'm needy, God, and you're going to be what satisfies me. Your voice is going to be what's authoritative in my life. And that's how we move towards overcoming. So whenever we idolize an object, maybe it's romance, maybe it's acceptance, maybe it's friendship, maybe it's a political ideology. Whenever we make that our thing, our goal, our aspiration, whatever you look at first in the morning and you linger on throughout the day on your phone, beware. These things are good. Political ideologies, thoughts, but you can't be mastered by them because you have an identity that's been authoritatively spoken over you. You're way more than your friends say you are on Twitter, whether they affirm you are Instagram or Facebook. I almost said MySpace. Show you how old I am. Woo! You're way more than, the, than, the, than your cell phone has to say who you are. You're more than that. Don't exchange that. Don't exchange what God says for you. This scripture has been around for thousands of years, and if the world tarries, it's going to be around thousands more long after the Instagram posts and the likes or dislikes are gone. I heard someone faint there, I think. <laughs> So it's not your weight, it's not perfection, it's not helping others enough, it's not success, it's not peers, it's not marriage, it's not having children or not having children. It's the authoritative voice, God looking at you and saying, you are my beloved. I'm well pleased. I have a bright future ahead for you. I have an inheritance. I can't wait to load on you. Surely, goodness and mercy, you keep walking with me, it's going to follow you all the days of your life. And then after your life's done, you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what I have for you. And finally, how do we, how do we be intentional? How can we get intentional with embracing this identity? In this passage, we see Jesus' continual response is, it is written. He's going to the word of God. There's lots of voices constantly speaking, but there's one constant voice. And Jesus says, it is written. Guess what? It's already been established. You can say, go look back at my adoption papers. It's already written. I'm already part of the family. I'm not going to jump through hoops to get in this. I'm already in. It is written, but unlike Jesus... We each have believed a lie that Satan has spoken over us at an opportune time. Satan came in and whispered something when you were in third grade. Satan came in and whispered something when you were in college. And you've accepted that. You've imbibed that lie and you're living out of it. And this sounds like a terrible thing to be living under a lie, but guess what? You know, I think, we actually cherish our lies. We actually like these lies. We like to live in this, and this is why. We hate it, but we love it. We cherish our lies because they are functional autonomy for us. For instance, how can I be accepted? I'm going to get great grades. It's something I can do. How am I going to be accepted? Well, I'm terrible at school, but I can be really nice to people. I'm going to function. I'm going to 
function through this lie that the only way you're valuable and accepted is if you're really kind or if you're really smart or if you're really strong or if you're really pretty or if you're really this or that or if you're a really good Christian or if you're really sober. None of those things get you love and acceptance. Those are functional lies that we're living in. So we cherish these lies. So in order to embrace our identity, we have to identify, what am I cherishing? Where do I go? And think about this. Where do you go when you're hurt and you're wounded? Maybe it's veg out. I'm just going to go Netflix for, for several hours. I'm going to eat. I'm going I'm to go back to work. I'm going to become a workaholic, and I'm going to prove. I'm going to get a nice new car. I'm going to get some new clothes. I'm going to show people who they're dealing with. That's, that's cherishing a lie. That's cherishing a lie. That that's your route. That that's your road to acceptance and to love. When God's already spoken, he said, no, you are my beloved. You either got to believe the scripture or you're going to believe someone else's scripture, a script they wrote for you. You are my beloved. And I used to, well, I, we all wrestle with this every day, but one way that stands out to me from my past was I used to be a beast living room wrestler. And I mean, I'm not that big a guy, but I, I, mean, I went, went against guys, you know, 50 pounds plus, and I would always win. I would dominate. And I'll tell you in my secret, my secret power, I was so insecure I knew that if I got beat, I would become nothing. So while they're thinking this is a friendly kind of wrestling match, I'm about to slam you as hard as I can and establish that I have worth, that I have value, that I have significance, that I'm a man, and you have to look at me differently after this match. Full of insecurity. I had no sense of identity. It was the lie that I cherished. Tyson, the way that you can establish that you have worth is by slamming this person to the ground and holding them on their backs. So perhaps the best thing for me would have been to lose a match and have to say, which it happened, <laughs> and have to say, wow, I guess I have to put my identity in something more stable. Identify that lie. Renounce it. I no longer, my worth is not based upon winning a wrestling match. It sounds silly when you say it out loud, but say it next time you're in the car alone. My identity is not based upon my looks. It's not based upon how strong I am. It's not based upon my performance. Yes, I love these. These are all good things, but they're not going to own me because someone else already owns me, and he calls me son and daughter. So until we renounce the lie in our foolish strategies, we will be ruled by them. Until we renounce our lies and our foolish strategies, they will continue to rule us. So go, go home today. Write in your journal, what is, what is the lie? What is my strategy? What's my go-to for comfort? And say, say it out loud. I am not the sum total of my parenting. I am not the sum total of being single 
or married or dating. Name it out and say, I renounce you. Satan, I rebuke you. It is written that I'm beloved, that I'm cherished, and that I'm already pleasing. God's going to make you famous one day. You're going to walk into the gates of heaven, and, and everyone's going to stop, and he's gonna, they're going to look. What's God saying? Well done, my good and faithful servant. He's going to make you famous. He's going to show the glory that you truly have. Well done. You're famous now. Now you are famous. Well done. Because the greatest one ever is looking at you in the eyes, and he's saying, well done. Good and faithful servant. You believed what I said about you. That's why one of the heroes, my heroes of the Bible is Mary, because she's like the only person that I ever see. Jesus speaks to her, and she says, yeah, okay, I believe that. You said it. I'm going to be immaculately <laughs> conceived, immaculately have a child. Like, she believed that. That's a pretty wild thing. And she said, yeah, I believe that. And that's what God's calling you to. Say, yeah, I believe that. Yeah, it's unlikely that it would be me, but yeah, I believe that. And I renounce the lie that I'm going to be accepted on anything else but that. You can, uh, you can, you can kind of take, take your pulse on this identity thing. When you walk into church, are you walking in with a posture of like, okay, is anyone going to love me? Is anyone going to like me? Am, am I going to be accepted? Well, you're, what you've done is you're saying my acceptance in church is my acceptance with God. And I'm so sorry. It doesn't work like that. Churches fail greatly. People fail greatly. God is the one who can affirm you. So what I want you to do is you go into church saying, I'm loved by God. And guess what happens to your mindset? You're no longer thinking, who's going to love me? You're thinking, who am I going to love? Because I got something to give. I have an identity. I'm a son. I'm a daughter. I have an inheritance. And if you read, read uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, there's, there's the wardrobe that the kids go into, and suddenly when they enter the wardrobe, the reality, the real reality comes to bear. You're kings, you're, you're queens. It's hard to believe that sometimes because you step out of the wardrobe and you think, I'm just a kid getting chased around the house by an angry housemaid. But you step in, oh, I'm actually royalty. I have dignity. And so I want to call you to Live in the wardrobe reality. If you don't live in the wardrobe reality, which is the scripture, your promised future, your standing before God in Christ, you will live in, by someone else's reality, by someone else's philosophy, by someone else's belief system. You will. And it's going to be works-based, or it's going to be nothing matters. It's going to be one of those two options. It's all meaningless, or it's only what you can produce. Live in the wardrobe reality. You are kings and queens right now in the fray of the messy world we live in. You're a beloved daughter right now, regardless of what happened on your team. If you got accepted, rejected, you are beloved right now. And the next time you feel hurt and tempted to, to doubt, Fight against the enemy. That means you're going through a spiritual battle right then. And the enemy's saying, this is who you are. No, it is written. The most beautiful thing about this story is this. Jesus, 
He loves you so much. We read, read recently in our John reading that God so loved the world. He loved the world. What does that mean, he loved the world? Well, he sent his son into a very dangerous place where he knew he'd be brutalized, killed, betrayed, and mistreated. He sent him into that place so he could get you and pull you out and extract you and redeem you and shape you. And when he went on the cross, notice what Jesus said, the cry of dereliction. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's a sense in which he lost his identity so that you could have an identity. A son or daughter. He understands excruciating pain, excruciating rejection, betrayal, physical pain, illness, sickness. He understands it all because he came in the flesh to pursue you because God so loved the world. He said, I'm not going to leave them with ten, two stone tablets, cold stone instructions. I'm going to give them flesh and blood that hurts, that bleeds, that cries, and that ultimately dies to say, you're my beloved son too. You're my beloved daughter too. I'm well pleased with you. Please pray with me. Oh, Lord, thank you for your word. This is good news. This is the good news. The good news that we're waiting for every day when we get on our phone and look for something. This is the good news. That you loved us so much that you sent your son to secure for us an identity that will never be tarnished. Would you now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, give us the ability to imbibe and to receive our true identity and to live out of it and to identify and to renounce it, to cling to what is true? We ask these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.